My wife loves birthday parties. She plans for birthday parties six months in advance, at least. She likes themes. They're always You can't just have a birthday party with a cake and, and some streamers and balloons. No, you have to have a theme, something that ties it all together. And everything has to go with the theme in some way, shape, or form. So this was a, a Little Mermaid theme, an under-the-sea theme, and so we had balloons that were bubbles hanging from the ceilings. We had jellyfish hanging from the ceilings that my wife had made, getting ideas off of Pinterest. It was amazing. She's amazingly creative. But there's something that comes along with all that amazing creativity, and that's messiness. As you decorate for a party and you're putting up decorations, there's the extra stuff, the tape and the extra string and the wrapping paper and the other stuff that isn't part of a decoration but is necessary in the decoration, it all gets left behind, right? So the party started at 4. I had some errands to run and to get some stuff for the party and some last-minute stuff. I come home around 3 and decorations are up. My wife's working on the cake. Everything's going well. But it's messy. There's stuff all over, and I think, we've got people coming. We've got to clean up this mess so that we can have a party. And, of course, for us, it was sort of a mess on top of a mess because we had just moved in, and we still had a lot of the mess of moving in. Just. I probably should stop using that excuse. It was a couple months ago now. To me, that was just moving in. There's a lot of mess. We live in a messy world, don't we? And I think on Mother's Day especially, I think it's appropriate to talk about mess. I know my wife struggles with it every day. The laundry is a mess. doesn't matter how much she does the laundry. doesn't matter how well she's doing it, keeping up with it. It's still a mess. The kids' rooms, the minute after you get them to clean it, it's a mess again. The house is a mess. I am really good. Um, Okay, I might be a little messy too. Our world is a mess. Politically, as a country, we're going through a a season of choosing a president. That's always a mess. I think this year, more so than so many others, it's even more of a mess. I think families are messy. Relationships with family members, you know, here you are on Mother's Day, and maybe your relationship with your mom is not good. Maybe it's messy. Maybe your relationship with your kids, grown or not grown, is messy. Maybe it's other relationships in your families. Families are messy. Churches are messy. And I don't mean just needing a work day. I mean the relationships within the church and the opinions about how things should go and what the church should be about. And and tensions can rise and, and best friends can turn against each other. Things can happen that make the church messy. What if, through it all, we could understand and really trust that there is a plan that runs through the mess. It's not a plan that just makes all the mess magically go away, but it weaves its way through the messiness of our lives, intentionally taking that mess and using the mess for beautiful things and bringing beauty to that mess. A plan that takes things that we think are hopeless and brings hope to it. A plan that takes things that we think are completely broken and brings healing. We've been going through a sermon series on Ephesians. So open up to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If you really don't have a Bible, take ours. That's my mother's gift to you, even if you're not a mom. That's okay. 
can still take the Bible on Mother's Day. We are in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 through 21, but we're in part, what are we in? Part 12 of this sermon series on Ephesians. And I've called this series a new belonging. A new belonging, the message of Ephesians for a lonely world. Because as our world celebrates individual freedom, I see a, a correlating attitude developing in our world, a correlating problem, which is you are more individually free than possibly any other society before us, and yet I think there is more loneliness than ever. Because we get to a point where our individual freedom isolates us from everybody else around us. And people are hurting. People are struggling. And so we're looking at this idea that Paul writes a letter to this church in Ephesus, and there's strong indication that it was meant to travel to other churches as well, sort of a circular letter. And he's addressing some fundamental needs in the church. And he goes to Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he talks about the greatness of Christ and the plan of God in Christ, this eternal plan that has not been changed or altered since the beginning of time. God knew the way things were going to go. And he had a plan to deal with it from the very beginning. And then at the end of chapter 1, Paul prays. He prays that they would understand who Christ is, that they would know Christ, that they would know this plan. And then in chapter 2, he picks up and he talks about, you were dead in your sins, but now in Christ you can be made alive through his grace, not through anything you can do. And this is the beginning of that new belonging. This great plan of God is that through Christ, we can be reunited, rejoined to the God who made us. We're not left adrift in our own personal freedom that promises great personal satisfaction but can never actually deliver it, we can be restored through Jesus Christ to our Creator, the one who truly knows us, the one who understands what is really right and wrong. So Paul talks about that through the end of chapter 2, verse 10, and then in verse 11 through 22, he begins applying this to the church in Ephesus. They had a specific issue they were dealing with, and it was very common in the New Testament church, as you got away from Israel, it was a problem of Jews and Gentiles, people of these vastly different backgrounds, coming together in one church, having one identity in Christ. And it was a glorious thought. It was a beautiful application of theology. The problem was it was messy in practice. It was hard. Because these old tensions, these old feelings, these old thoughts were still present. And people would see each other in church. Oh, you're here can't believe so-and-so's here. That's fine. They can sit over there. I'll sit over here. It's okay. And these tensions were present. And so Paul deals with that. And he says, if we're going to really see that gospel of God's grace in action, it has to show itself in the church. The church has to be this, this symbol, this living embodiment of this new belonging of our relationship with God that shows itself in our relationship with others. Then in chapter 3, he goes through his own ministry. He says, you you know, right, why I do what I do. I do what I do so that people can have these relationships, first with God and with each other. And he goes through his sufferings and his struggles, and we talked about that last week. And so now, at the end of this second section of Ephesians, he does what he did at the end of the first section of Ephesians. He prays says, now all this stuff that I've just told you, I'm going to pray and apply it to your situation. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this prayer in verses 14 through 21. We're going to look at three parts. You'll see them in your bulletin if you're following along in the notes, or I'll, I'll put them up here. But it's that there's a purposeful design, 
incredible strength and focused glory. And what I want to do, since this is Mother's Day, uh, is we will apply this to being a mom. Because I think there's a lot here for mothers. But first, we're going to say, what is Paul saying and why is he saying it to the Ephesian church? This is a rule when you read scripture. We should never read scripture opening up and saying, what does this mean to me? How does this apply to me? You need to start reading scripture saying, what did it mean to the author? Why did he write it to the people he's writing it to? Start there. And you might say, well, I don't know. That's okay. But ask yourself, read, what is he saying? Why is he saying it? How does it apply in the context? So we're going to start there because then we can understand what the text is really about so we can apply it to other situations. So we'll apply it to moms, but also to all of us. And I don't think it's just moms that face messiness in their lives, right? The messiness for a mom and anybody else might not be the messiness we think of in a home or with kids, toys, laundry. I mean, it can be the messiness of relationships. It could be the messiness at work. It could be the messiness of our own sin or somebody else's sin. We're all dealing with messiness in our worlds and in our lives. So we're going to walk through that and look at these three aspects, purposeful design, incredible strength, focus, glory, and we'll apply them to Paul and the Ephesians. We'll look at it through the, the lens of motherhood and then to all of us. So let's start first with purposeful design. Let me read the prayer and then we'll go back through and take it point by point. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let's start with this purposeful design. Look at what Paul says as he's praying. And again, he's coming out of teaching them about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the early church and how the gospel breaks down those barriers. They are new creations, new people, a new family. So with that in mind, he begins this prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Look at who he's praying to. He's kneeling before God. Now, that's pretty obvious, right? If you're going to pray, you should probably pray to God because anything else would be idolatrous. But not just to God, but how he identifies God. That tells you something about his prayer and what he's trusting in. So he's kneeling, which is a sign of submission and worship. So he's recognizing that God is God and he is not. That God is great. That God is greater than the messiness or the potential messiness of that early church and the struggles they're going through. And he calls God the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Literally, the, the Greek says he is the father of all fatherhood. Now, a lot of people scratch their heads at this and say, what in the world is he talking about? And this is where I think looking at the context is so great. 
They are struggling in that church, according to the end of chapter 2, they're struggling with these two different people groups coming together in this one new thing, the church. Jews from the family of Jewish people, from the heritage of Jewish people, have come together with Gentiles from families of Gentiles, the heritage of the Gentiles, and they're coming together. These completely different backgrounds are smashing into each other in the early church. And it's not going so well at times. And so look at what he's doing. He's saying, God, I recognize you're actually the father beyond any father that anybody could claim. Everybody that traces their heritage back, it doesn't matter whether it goes through the Jewish nation or any Gentile branch, it all goes back to you, God, creator. He's praying to the one that can bring unity to the church. And he's specifically digging into that aspect of theology that points them to their unity together. He says, look, you want to you wanna celebrate your background? That's great. You want to embrace your heritage and hold it up with each other? That's wonderful. Go far enough back. Go all the way back to your Creator. That is where you'll find the beauty in your messiness. And so he points them back to God, their ultimate Father. He sees what they might think is a mess of this great diversity in the church coming together and there's no human way of figuring out how this works. And he says, oh, God already has that. He's already planned that from the very beginning. And so he's praying to the God who is the father of them all. Moms, motherhood's messy. We have some new mothers in the church. We have mothers-to-be. We have mothers who have been mothers for a long time. And I think all of you could agree on, and the dads as well, being a parent, being a mom, I think in particular, is messy. Right? You're charged with the weightiness of raising a child. Guess what, moms? You're in way over your head. You are. It's messy. I mean, we could talk about diapers, right? That's a whole other sense of mess. There's the toys scattered around the house specifically designed to puncture your foot when you step on it. There's the being woken up in the middle of the night by a screaming totter that's lost their fuzzy bunny. These are the serious things that mothers have to deal with. There's watching your child get hurt by others. Sometimes on a playground getting pushed down, but sometimes through words, sometimes through actions, sometimes through just meanness that they have to go through in the world. And and as a mom, you're standing there and you're watching it. Sometimes you have to stand by and watch your child hurt him or herself. And the mess is caused by them. Sometimes the mess is caused by you. And you have to watch them go through that. You have to watch and love your child so completely and yet let them live their own life because you're not God. As much as you want to, you can't ultimately control your own child. Life is messy. Now let's take the theology that Paul just applied to the church in Ephesus. And by theology, I mean knowledge of God. That's what theology means. It's not some science. It's not some academic course to study. It very simply means knowledge of God. Let's take the same knowledge of God and apply it to motherhood. Who is the ultimate one responsible for your child? It is God. Who is the ultimate parent of your child? It is God. Who is the one that truly knows your child even more than you do? God. 
So in this messy situation where you're in way over your head, you have one to look to and to trust and to cry out to, just as Paul was for the Ephesian church. He's saying, God, I'm praying to you because you're in charge of that church, not me. And I pray these things for them. God has a plan to bring beauty from our messes. Maybe you didn't have a great mother. Maybe that's part of the messiness of your own life. Maybe you don't think you're being a great mom. Maybe that's part of the messiness of your life as well. Maybe you think you're awesome and your child's a mess. And that's part of the messiness of your life. No matter what, remember, no matter how great of a parent you may be, God is God. And you are not. He knows what he is doing. He has a design for you as a mother and for your child. And that design is bringing purpose to the messiness of our lives. Run to him. And for the rest of us, whatever our mess is, whatever it is that you're facing, cry out to the one who really is God, who really does know what's going on, who really does have a plan already at work in that situation that you may not even see. God brings beauty to messes. He starts by taking people like us who are messy to begin with and through His grace and His mercy, forgiving us, wiping away our sin to make us beautiful in Him. And then He takes us and He uses us to spread that message in the world. Purposefully. A beautiful design. This is not easy. It's not easy to trust in that design. It's not easy to trust in that that purpose when all we see is messiness. When we look at our own hearts and go, I can't do it. I'm a mess. This is why we need the incredible strength. And so Paul prays, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul knows that the situation in this church in Ephesus is beyond something that the people can do. It's more than them. It's bigger than them. All the the logic of the world applied to that situation of these two totally diverse people groups in the New Testament, all of that logic in the world applied to that would say, this isn't going to work. There's got to be a better way to do this. You guys should, you go your way and do your church and you go your way and do your church and this will be great. And Paul says, no, 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 there's a higher logic. It's the logic of the gospel that says we're all sinners and yet all saved in Christ. So if we separate what are we saying about the gospel? So Paul says, if they're going to have strength to be the church that God has called them to be, to be the embodiment of the gospel that God has called them to be, they're going to need a strength that is not their strength. And so he prays, and he, he talks about the source of the strength that he's praying for, that God would pull out of this source, the source of his glorious riches, inexhaustible, unlimited That's the source of the church in Ephesus. That's what they needed to trust in. Not, can we make this work? Hey, can we have a committee meeting and figure this out? Can can we have a vote and work this out? Paul says, no, no, no. It's the inexhaustible strength of God. 
And it's the strength that is applied in their lives through God's Spirit working inside of them. Listen to this. When faced with a difficult situation, God does not come to us and say, work harder. You're slacking off. You need to step it up. Moms, you got to work better. Everybody else, you got to work harder. Church, you got to be better. He says, no, no, no. It's God's strength that works harder. And it works harder inside of you from the inside out, making you something you could never be on your own. It's an incredible, incredible strength. Strength for what, though? Do they need strength to overcome this diversity? Strength to come up with great growth plans so this will all work out? Look at verse 17. He says, the strength they need is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, wait a minute. Paul, that's not really the problem. I mean, they're Christians already. They've accepted Jesus Christ already. Their problem is they're, they're not really getting along. They need strength for that. And he says, no, 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 you got to go back to the beginning. I preached on this last August when we went through the prayers of Paul. And I read a quote, and I, I won't read it again, but it, it was from D.A. Carson, but the gist of it was this. This idea of dwelling. It's not just praying that you would accept Jesus into your heart. It was the concept that that when somebody buys a home and they move into it, the paint on the wall is not the paint they picked out. The, The carpet on the floor is not the carpet they picked out. Maybe there's trash and debris left over from the previous owners. That's not theirs. Oh, it's their home. But as you walk around, it doesn't reflect them. It's not things they chose. And so day after day after day, the new homeowner goes through and paints, pulls up carpet, lays down new floor. We recently finally put some pictures up on the wall. What a difference that makes. Who knew? You walk in, I mean, before it was like, okay, we picked these colors, we did the floor, we did this. But now I look, that's my family on the wall. Every day that we live in our home, that home becomes a better reflection of us. That's what Paul's praying for. He says, I want Christ to so dwell in you that he's doing the home renovation in your life to make you a better reflection of him. And guess what you're going to need in order to allow that to happen in your life? You're going to need a lot of strength. Because I bet if you could talk to a home when it's being renovated, I bet that home would say, it hurts. It hurts a lot. And you know, when God comes in and he renovates our own lives, it hurts. And the, the church in Ephesus needed that. They needed that renovation in their own life. They needed the strength to trust in Christ's presence to say, Jesus, do the work in me that only you can do. But they also needed to trust in Christ's love. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And he taps into two images there that he's used before. It's a, a, an art, agricultural metaphor of growing, crops growing, plants growing, and an architectural metaphor of building something and raising it up. He did this back in chapter 2, verse 21. When he's talking about the church, and remember, in Scripture, when you see the word church, think people. It's a group of people. The church in Scripture is never, ever, ever, ever a building. Never. Not once. It's a group of people. The church is also not some organization, some hierarchy. It's the group of people saved by Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. So he says, referring to the church, in him, the whole building is joined together. He's not calling the church a building. He's not referring to the building where they meet. He's saying the church, metaphorically, is something that's being built by Christ. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And that word rising is the agricultural thing. The NIV kind of loses the meaning a little bit. 
but it's built up and grown up. And so he picks that up again. And that helps us to understand he wants them to be rooted, sinking their roots down deep in Christ's love, and built up. Foundation, brick, 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 wall and wall and wall upon wall, built up in the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's not about them. That's what chapter 2 made very clear. It wasn't about them. God was doing this so that He could dwell in them, so that His glory could shine through them. The love that gives them roots and a firm foundation is Christ's love. And based on the context of Ephesians, that love must be understood through the gospel. The good news that we are sinners, but Christ died in our place. That's the love of the gospel. That's what brings us into this new, growing, built-up thing called the church. What is the greatest thing they need in the messiness of their situation? Look at verse 18 and 19. That they may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul says to a church in danger of being overcome with their messiness that they need strength. They need to be rooted and established in love, not so they can fix their mess, but so they can know Christ's love more. That's the solution to the messiness in that church in Ephesus, that they would know Christ's love, be rooted in that love, and live out that love in their situation. And he has a purpose for this in verse 19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's talking to that local church and he says, God has a plan for you and it's more than just you. I want you to so know who God is and so know his love in your life that it overflows, that your church becomes an embodiment of God's love so that other people can see it. Only that can bring that beauty to their mess. This takes incredible strength. It's a strength that the church doesn't have on their own. Paul didn't tell them to sit down and create a focus group to figure out the Jew and Gentile problem. He told them to look to Jesus Christ. Moms, I want to encourage you this morning. This is is where I make the typical Mother's Day point, the the pep top uh, to encourage you to keep being a mom. Okay, you ready? Here it comes. I said it earlier, I'll repeat it again. You're in way over your head. There's a starting point. Let me give you the second corollary to really encourage you, okay? Take this home with you. Write it down. You will fail at being a mother. Did you get that? Let me repeat that again. You will fail at being a mother. How am I doing with the pep talk? My my wife says I'm a master of encouragement. Um, You see, we live in a world that tells us over and over again, you can do this. Oh, you're amazing. You be great, and and I'll help you to be great. You you can do this. Just work a little bit harder, and you'll be awesome. You've got everything you need to be the best you you can be. That's wonderful, until it's not. It's, It's great until you're in a situation where you've got this wisdom behind you going, you've got this, you've got this, and you're in a situation going, I don't got this. See, here's the beauty of the truth of the gospel. When you're in the situation that says, you don't got this, you go, I know I don't got this. I'm a sinner. And you go, oh man, I really blew that situation to go back to what you know about God and Jesus Christ and the gospel and go, yep, guess what? You're going to make mistakes. 
Our faith embraces the fact, it interprets the fact that of course we're going to make mistakes. So rather than rejecting everything we've been told in that situation, we can embrace it. The lie of this positive thinking is that it doesn't always work, but the gospel does. You are in way over your head. You will fail. Rather than trying to contradict these thoughts, rather than try to have all these pithy sayings that just pep you up and encourage you in those moments, embrace it. I am going to fail. I am in way over my head. Why? Because it's not ultimately about you. Mothers, being a mom, it's not ultimately about you. It's not even ultimately about your kids. It's about God. And the strength that you have to be a mom, when you look at it and say, I'm going to fail, I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, you're right, because it's not supposed to be about your strength. It's supposed to be about God's. And the source of that strength is inexhaustible, unfathomable. When you're in a situation, you say, how can I love this child enough? How can I show them the love that will point them in the right direction? It's not ultimately about your love. It's about the love of Christ. That's what they need. The strength you have to be a mother is not your strength. It is the strength of Christ. And the source of love that you have to give your children is not your love, but the inexhaustible love of Christ. Now for everyone else. We've bought into this lie, kind of like a Home Depot commercial. You can do it, God can help. It's just not true. That's, that's not God's point. God is not here to make us the best us we can be. God is not here to just bless whatever it is we want him to bless, to make us happy. God has a plan and a purpose, and the strength to carry out that plan and that purpose is his strength. And the way we're going to face that mess is never by lying to ourselves that we're good enough. That we deserve this. That's the lie of this world. It is by accepting we are not good enough. That we need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We need the saving power of Jesus Christ. We need the saving love of Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is, in Christ, that's exactly what you get. You have an incredible strength, but it is his strength, not yours. So knowing God brings this purposeful design to our mess, it gives us incredible strength, the very strength of God as we face this mess. But because of all that, it means he gets the glory. Look at what Paul says. Talks about focused glory. Who gets the glory for this? Verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If the Ephesian church was to hold a focus group, sit down, have a congregational meeting, figure all of this out, have a wonderful program for reuniting the church and and bringing Jews and Gentiles together, and people came in and go, wow, that church has the best program for uniting those people. It's amazing. What a great church. They've just missed the point. Nobody should walk into a church. Nobody should gather with a church. Nobody should see a Christian and be amazed at who they are. They should be amazed at who God is. That's the focus of the glory. 
Paul says that the one who is able to do more than the Ephesian church could possibly ask or imagine. So as they're facing the impossible task of uniting these two completely different people groups, Paul says, guess what? God's greater than that. He can do way more than that. Are you kidding? That's a small thing for him. So that he gets the glory. That was the plan all along. God bringing glory to himself by bringing beauty to the messiness of this world. So that the world sees a display of God, not a display of us. Moms and everyone, let's do this one together. God has a plan to bring glory to himself through you. Your successes and your failures. To still bring glory. And that plan never fails. I want to give you two challenges. I want you to trust in God's ability to bring glory to himself. Think of how I just said that. Trust in God's ability to bring glory to himself. When you get in a situation, moms, dads, workers, whatever it is, you're in a situation go, oh, God, I can't bring glory to God. I, I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. Or the situation's messed up. I can't bring glory to God in this situation. Pastor Dave, you don't understand how messed up my family is. I, how could I possibly bring glory to God? It's wrong question. Is God strong enough to bring glory to himself in that situation? That's the right question. And guess what the answer is? It's always yes. Always. So we've got to trust in God's ability to bring glory to himself. That's what this passage is saying. It is his power at work within us to bring glory to himself. Moms, that power's at work in you. To bring glory to to God through you. That power's even at work in your kids. Does that mean everything's going to work out perfectly? No. But it means God's right there with you. He knows what he's doing, and you can trust in that. Trust in God's ability to bring glory to himself. The second thing I want to challenge you with, don't steal God's glory. Everybody, not just moms, don't steal God's glory. This is a pattern throughout Scripture. God says, I will not give my glory to another. It's also a pattern throughout Scripture. When the people get in trouble, they go, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. I can't do this. I'm on my own. Help me, help me. God helps them. They go, look at what I did. Don't steal God's glory. Moms, when you come up with a great idea and you're doing something with your kids and it's working out, you turn that glory to God. Because whether you that idea popped into your head or it came through a friend or it came through Pinterest, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, he was sovereign over all of it. And if anything good came out of it, it was because he is bringing glory to himself. Don't steal his glory. It's very easy to go on Facebook and post things about how great we are. Look at what I've done. Look at what my church has done. Look at all these amazing things. Look, look at how great this party was. Don't steal God's glory. God's purpose in bringing beauty to our messes is not so that we feel better about ourselves, but so that we and everyone else see him. You know, when a painter is, is painting a picture, and this is where I have to go back to Bob Ross. I've mentioned him before. I don't know. I'm enamored with Bob Ross, right? Big, fluffy-haired Bob Ross painting happy little trees on Channel 11. That's what it was in Chicago growing up. PBS station. There's kind of three components there. He's got the canvas that he's painting the picture on. He's got the, the brush in his hand. And, and what does he have over here? It's called a palette. Like a piece of wood. I guess it could be glass or plastic. And he's dabbing the brush, mixing the paint. 
That palette is, is just globs of paint that are smeared together. It's a mess. Nobody's looking at an artist going, man, what an amazing palette. Look at how beautifully arranged that thing is. No, it's messy. It's supposed to be messy. Our lives are like that palette for God. And the brush is the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes our sin and redeems us, buys us back, saves us, makes us holy, and then uses us to apply that mess to a canvas. And that canvas is the picture of God's glory and what he's doing in this world. We're looking at the palette and the globs of paint going, how can I possibly do that? And God says, let me introduce you to the brush of Jesus Christ. And then when people look at us, they shouldn't be looking at the palette. They should be looking at the picture and we go, that's God. The paint didn't magically leap off the palette, splatter on the the picture and go, wow, look how amazing it is. No, the artist did that. The artist gets the glory. Even in our mess, he has a purposeful design. He gives incredible strength and he brings focused glory to himself. I pray that the more we love and know the work of Christ in us, the more the mess of our lives This church and our families displays the beauty and the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are messy people. And I know on Mother's Day, it it can be a wonderful time to celebrate our moms. It can be a wonderful time for the little kids to do things for their moms and, and to step up and celebrate them for us to remember wonderful mothers that have gone on before us. But at the same time, I know it, it can also be hard. It can be hard looking at what could have been, what should have been, what maybe isn't right now. Whether it's a mom that's let us down or, or as a mom feeling that we're letting somebody else down. And yet, God, I hope even in the situation of this church in Ephesus, we can see a a picture of our own messiness and the same truth, the same theology that Paul is praying for and applying to that church applies to us today. Whether it's as a mom or anything else, you still bring beauty from messes through the power of your love, through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all for your wonderful glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.